I'm going to be speaking to you guys um, uh, over the next two weeks about the role of the Holy Spirit. I think there's a lot of confusion in the church on who the Spirit is and what he does. I think that the church has often fallen into uh, two extremes that we want to avoid uh, as followers of Jesus. And I think on one side you have, uh, you have what I would call the hyper-charismatic, which is driven by uh, a, a lust for experience, uh, an experiential Christianity that's driven by that sort of um, looking for the, the supernatural and looking for the, those experiences that would elevate the senses and, uh, and draw, draw the person closer to Jesus in some sort of mystical, uh, experiential practice. Uh, and the issues with that is it relegates the spirit to a force to be wielded rather than a personality to be worshipped. I think on the other side, however, the extreme lends itself uh, to the spirit, people being uncomfortable with the spirit and the spirit being relegated uh, to the scriptures as if that's the only safe place for the Holy Spirit. And in that, that realm, you have kind of the, a new holy trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. And both sides uh, miss the mark because the Holy Spirit is the third person in the trinity. And the reason that we often find ourselves confused about the spirit is because of the very fact that he's spirit. The thing with the spirit is spirit can't be seen. And so the Holy Spirit, when he's described for us in the scriptures, is described using a series of symbols. And the symbols are not meant to diminish his personhood, but merely to give us insight into what he is like, and specifically what he's like in connection with who we are as God's people. And so, so I want to bring us to this place of, of balance, I hope, over the next two weeks, and we're going to begin today uh, by looking at the meaning of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to go ahead and turn there, Acts chapter 2, and we're just going to consider the first uh, four verses, Acts chapter 2, and this is, to give you the setup, uh, Jesus has died, risen from the dead, has appeared to his followers over a period of about 40 days. And in Acts chapter 1, we see the last interaction with Jesus and his disciples, and he tells them to go and wait for the coming of the promised one, for the coming of the, the Holy Spirit, that they would be baptized from power from, within, uh, from high, and that they would be witnesses to him uh, throughout the whole world. And so... Jesus' followers gather in, in what is commonly called the upper room, and there they prayed and they waited. And there was a, an obedience to the very command of Christ uh, to simply wait. There was a recognition amongst them that they had something that was yet needed in order to fulfill the very mission of Jesus. They were now convinced that he indeed was the Savior of the world. Uh, the resurrection was the Father's stamp of approval upon the atoning work of the Son, but it wasn't complete. And see, I think one of the issues that we have with the church today is that we often are satisfied with the work of Jesus on the cross, but we stop somewhere between Easter and Pentecost. But there is no power, nor is there any ability for us 
to live as children of God apart from the Holy Spirit. And so having a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit, as I like to call the shy one in the Trinity, uh, the reason we don't think about him often is because he always redirects our attention to Jesus, uh, is it, it creates issues for us, however, when we do not yield to the sovereignty of the Spirit as truly Lord of the church. And so Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, shows us the fulfillment of Christ's own words to his disciples the night of his betrayal when he spoke of another helper coming. When he said, it's good that I go away, for if I do not depart, then the helper would not come to you. But if I depart, I will send another helper, the Holy Spirit, to you. And when he comes, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. That he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment that he will guide you into all truth, that he will never speak on his own behalf, but he would only speak those words which he hears, that he would basically only speak to us that which he receives from the Father and from the Son. And so Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we see when the day of Pentecost arrived. Pause right there. Pentecost was a Jewish celebration. It was also called the holiday of the, or the celebration of the first fruits. Um, it, it followed... Um, followed after the Passover, which Jesus, uh, the parallel is Jesus was the, the Passover lamb. Remember when the children of Israel were set free from Egypt, God told them to put the blood of a lamb on their door um, posts and that when the, uh, when the angel of death would come through the land, killing all of the firstborn, uh, everyone who had the blood of the lamb on the doors, uh, that that the, the angel would pass over and they would not lose anyone. And so they, it passed over their sin, essentially. And Jesus, being the perfect lamb, uh, sacrificed before the foundation of the world, the, the perfect, satisfactory atonement uh, in the, all of the things in the Old Testament were merely types, pictures looking forward to its fulfillment in Christ. And so the, the Passover um, was followed by what was called the Festival of Firstfruits, and that was now that we have been liberated as God's chosen people, this was for Israel, that they, they would bring their first fruits to the temple and, and offer them to the priest as a, as an, um, as a heart of, of gratitude and recognition for what God had done in his deliverance. Well, here we have a new Pentecost and God infusing it with new meaning because he himself is bringing forth the first fruit of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who's the firstborn over a new creation. And we'll see on this day, 3,000 um, enter into the family of God. And so this is the first fruits um, of a new covenant. And it, uh, very powerful. There's a lot of wonderful symbolism that we don't have time to get into. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Uh, and suddenly there came from heaven, notice, a sound like it's a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So notice, the Spirit comes, and it's like the sound of wind. It doesn't say that it is wind. Notice, it's, it's heard, not felt. Notice that. So it's like wind. It's a symbol. It's a symbol given. And that symbol's meant to give us some insight into who the Holy Spirit is. And it fills the whole house. The whole place is filled with this sound. And then it says, and suddenly, oh, excuse me, and divided tongues as of fire. Notice, as of fire, which means that it was like fire. It wasn't necessarily fire. Appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And so the Spirit fills. It's, 
in the place, and now it's upon the individual followers of Jesus. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so we have two two symbols, wind and fire, and one sign, the gift of tongues. And there is much that we can learn about the Holy Spirit from, from these three realities. What I love, too, is that the Spirit um, is with them, upon them, and then within them. And these are, these are also, there's significance in this. So I want to first begin by just the necessity of the Spirit. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we have to ask ourselves, how necessary is the Spirit, um, is his presence uh, to us to live like Jesus? I mean, we can put our faith in the work of Jesus on the cross and trust in him for our salvation, but can we actually be Christians apart from the Spirit of God? And the answer is explicitly no, you cannot. Jesus himself said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, unless one be born again, literally regenerated, looking back to the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 36, when he says, when God speaks of the coming of the new covenant, he says, I will remove the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within them um, that they might obey and follow my laws. The covenant people would be transformed not from without but from within. There needed to be some kind of actual transition, a regeneration, a second birth, if you will. It's what we call regeneration. It's what we call salvation. uh, It's what we call the baptism of the Spirit. And so you have here this reality that without the Spirit of God, and I want you guys to understand this, the church is utterly powerless. But the problem for us is that we live in a, in a day where, where many Christians uh, fall into that unfortunate category in which Paul wrote of in the last days, in 2 Timothy 3, 5, he says, in the last days, he says, will be perilous times, for he says that there will be many who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. That there's a lack of yieldedness to the actual reality of God's presence in the believer's life. There's a a said profession. I believe in Jesus, but I will maintain my own autonomy. And you cannot have both. When people ask me, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? The answer is always explicitly everything. That you have to lay down your life. There needs to be a yieldedness. Salvation obtains within it the concept of true surrender, submission. A yieldedness. Our first parents' primary sin was that they chose in eating the forbidden fruit to define for themselves what would be right and wrong. Up to that point, God had been the one who defined what was right and wrong. Now they defined it for themselves. And sin entering into the world showed us that the greatest reality of sin is it's an absolute and utter rebellion against God's sovereign rule and a rejection of God's grace. And so the Spirit comes into our lives to reestablish God's rule over our lives to set us in the full grace, God's love, um, and then empower us for Jesus's witness. And so this, this reality for us is that we can't be Christians apart from Christ in us. For the Holy Spirit, if he is anything, he is the spirit of Christ within us. 
A great illustration was given of this principle by Major Ian Thomas, one of my favorite English preachers who passed a couple years ago. And he said that the, the person without the Spirit of God is like a car without gasoline. And it doesn't matter if you have the fanciest car in the world, if the car doesn't have gas in it, it cannot function like a car. And don't throw out, what about electric cars? Because they're stupid. <laughs> And so, and everyone in Portland thinks they're so awesome. I'm like, I just wait for clowns to get out of them. They're just, I just get upset every time I see one. I'm angry by your car because it's dumb and it's ugly. Um, and so I, I, that was a tangent. It's the second service and I start getting Tourette's. I'm sorry. Uh, so she think about this, a car without gasoline, it, it can't function like a car and neither can a human without the spirit of God. It's like the verse in Proverbs where it says that the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord. And one of the uh, emblems that's given, the symbols of the Holy Spirit throughout the, throughout the scriptures is that of oil. A lamp without oil may be a lamp, but it cannot function like a lamp. A car without gasoline may be a car, but it cannot function like a car. A human being without the spirit of God within them, they may be a human being, but they cannot function like one. They can't even function like animals. Thomas says they actually function like maniacs. And I think that that's a profound insight into the dilemma of humanity taking upon itself its own sovereignty. That I will be my own God. I will define for myself what is right and what is wrong. And so we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have to consistently be aware of the natural tendency of the old man, of the old woman, uh, to, to give ourselves to that spirit. And this is the thing I want us to understand is that in order to be a spirit-filled people, we have to understand how to test the spirits. First John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. That includes what I'm saying right now. Do you understand that? I think one of the great dilemmas in the church is that there's this absolute willingness to just believe whatever the... Pre- well, he's behind the pulpit, so he must know. Well, I hope that what I say is utterly true and of the Spirit of God, but you are called as God's children to test what I say. Not only do we need anointed preachers, we need anointed listeners. <laughs> and what we really need above everything is for all of us as a community to be anointed pr- practitioners of what the Spirit teaches us. Um, so you have this reality that says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And John says, how do we know the spirit of Christ is that it acknowledges that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, how do we know the spirit of God? The spirit of God declares Jesus is Lord. Those are the bumpers on the bowling lane. Because when we begin to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit's work, the, ten- the reality is, is it, it will get messy. You know, even make us uncomfortable. And this is the classic. In Portland, it's all, there's a certain self-consciousness that, that hipsters are driven by that's amazing. It's like they're so afraid of doing anything that might be considered even slightly foolish. And so they're like, I don't want, the, I don't want my Christianity to get weird. I'm like, dude, let's, let's, let's think about that statement, okay? You don't want it to get weird. But you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, God actually came into the human story and entered into human flesh, 
God in the flesh, God who is unchanging, actually changed, became something he was not, that he lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, that he on the cross became some sort of mysterious substitutionary atonement for the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future, that on the third day he rose from the dead, and that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he sent his spirit to dwell within you, but you don't want to, you don't want to talk about anything weird like tongues. Everything you believe is weird. The world thinks you're a total weirdo if you love Jesus, Okay? It's absolutely crazy. That's why Paul said that to the world, that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So why are we afraid of the spirit? What we are is we're selective about what we think is weird. Like, I'm a little uncomfortable with tongues, so that's weird. I'm like, but I'm stoked that the spirit illuminates and empowers preaching because I preach. <laughs> this charismatic woman at our church, when I spoke on this, she goes, I think that you're going to speak in tongues someday from the pulpit. I'm like... Well, I have to have, that will never happen. Because <laughs> even if he wants to, I will actually reject that moment because I'm uncomfortable with that. And if I do, Paul says, you better interpret. So th- I put that back on you. <laughs> so, but it's true. It's like I'm uncomfortable with certain... I'm a reserved person. I don't want anything that makes me feel awkward. And it's like I'm comfortable with certain awkward things. I'll preach the gospel, open-air preaching. But like, you know, don't, don't stand up and give me a word of prophecy in, this, in the middle of the sermon, you know? Or, uh, so we have, to, we have to, I think that the parameters for us in, in, in opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit is this twofold, is that we have to learn how to test the spirits. And for us, the parameter is Jesus is Lord. And then the other parameter is that it has to function in love. But the power of this is that you think about it, that those become bumpers on a bowling lane. And think about bumpers. My wife is the worst bowler on the planet. But the powerful thing about a bumper is no matter how terrible your shot is, I don't know if that's what you would call throwing a bowling ball. It shows that I'm not a bowler either. But I mean, it can go, you can just toss it into the bumper. You're still going to knock down a couple pins. I mean, you're going to hit at least a couple things. If it's Jesus is Lord and in love, we're going to be relatively safe because we'll be able to, to encourage and exhort one another, and we will create a safe environment for the Spirit to be the sovereign Lord that he desires to be in the church. So, so how do we test the spirits? Well, I want to just first of all say this, that there are three kinds of spirits, I think, um, that, that are vying for our affection, are vying for our loyalty, honestly, that are not the Spirit of God. And you need to understand them in order to understand how powerful they are so that we can be continuously push ourselves back to the feet of Christ and, and yield ourselves to his Holy Spirit. And the first spirit is the spirit of this age. And if you don't think the spirit of this age is powerful, let me just explain to you what the spirit of the age is. And that would be the philosophies of the world, the cultural um, thrusts that are, that are presented to us in our entertainment, in our film, in our music, um, in our literature, uh, we don't have to worry about that because people don't like to read anymore. But, I mean, there's a, the, the spirit of the age affects all these things, actually. Uh, and, and it's so powerful that if you were to truly be honest with yourself right now, what you would begin to recognize is that many of you give yourself far more to the spirit of this age than you do the spirit of Jesus. Because what this has to do with is what voice are you listening to? And what voice are you, are you surrendering your, yourself to? I mean, here's an example. Do you spend more time reading your Bible in prayer and, and uh, living out the mission of Jesus than you do texting, 
Instagramming, Facebook, television, film, music, hobbies. The spirit of this age is is a powerful vice because it allures us away from the sovereignty of Christ. And the thing is, it often presents to us good things that become, become controlling things. They're, they're not God's best because the good things of life are meant to come under the, the umbrella of Jesus as Lord. And so we put Jesus as central, yielded to his Holy Spirit, that all the other things in life, even good things, can take their proper Place. It's not about the eradication of these things. It's about these things not controlling our primary thinking. It's about learning to look at Christian or look at the world through the lens of Christ rather than looking at Christ through the lens of the world, which is what diffuses and deconstructs the Christian life for many Christians. The second uh, spirit is the spirit, um, the spirits of of evil and of darkness. Uh, the dominions, the principalities, the powers that are spoken of throughout the entire New Testament. And it would be foolish for us to be skeptical um, of demonic realities in our world. We are in the middle of an unseen battle. And the devil and his followers are trying to destroy the church of Christ and into to influence your ability to properly witness. In fact, Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against, and he uses a whole series of words to describe this dominion of evil that affects individuals as well as entire societies. And it's real. Jesus spent half of his, uh, I would say, a, a huge portion of his very short ministry casting out demons. And so let us not underestimate the power of the demonic. I live in the city of Portland, which is a city that has given itself to new age and spiritual, um, spirituality, um, but has rejected the gospel primarily. And it is a demonic stronghold. And I honestly was like, relative, I thought that the demonic was so subtle and it's never manifests itself in stuff like we see in films until I started a church there. And I've seen things that make the hair on the back of my neck Stand up, but to avoid um, avoid the sensational, I'll spare that for you. Just to say that it's real, and it's a real it's a real influence. The third, and I think the most terrible of all the 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 spirits that impact us negatively is the human spirit. It's the spirit of you. The very worst enemy that you will ever face in your life is yourself. I can promise you that if Satan died today, you would sin tomorrow. And the fact is, is that the human spirit, it says that the heart, Jesus, when, and when he talks about the heart in the Hebrew mind, uh, the heart is the center of the, of the, human, the human will. It's the seat of emotions and, and desires. And he says the heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. For out of it proceeds murders and adulteries and fornications and lyings and thievery. And, and this is the reality, and this is why it is impossible to be a Christian without the Spirit of Christ, because we need a new heart. We don't need, heart, uh, we don't need our hearts repaired. We, need them, we, we don't need them restored. We need them replaced. And so I, I just want to set that out before we dive into these two symbols in this, in this one sign that we have in Acts chapter 2. So, there, so we've got to learn to test the spirits. The spirit is necessary. 
In order to live, the spirit is not a force to be wielded. He's not something in the past relegated to the scriptures, but the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God himself, and he is the sovereign ruler of the church, and he is meant to be worshiped and yielded to, okay? And so let's, let's look at these, these two signs, or these two symbols in this one sign, the, the symbol of wind, the symbol of fire, and the sign of tongues. So first of all, let's consider the wind in verse two, and suddenly there came from heaven a sun, a, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So wind, uh, it, this, the word that's used here in the Greek has its parallel of a word that's found in, in the Hebrew clear back in the very beginning of Genesis when God created man in his own image. When he created humanity in his own image, it says that God breathed into them. And this is that word for wind. It's the Hebrew word ruach. Um, and ruach literally means breath. And so if you were to put your hand in front of your, in front of your mouth and you were to breathe onto your hand, that's, that's ruach. But if you were to speak a word, what you'll notice is that you can still feel that same breath. And so it's, the, it's word. It's, it's not just air, but it's, it's living, personal presence. When I just said all those P's, my sibilants put a lot of ruach onto my hand. And so I love this picture because the wind coming into the room, it's almost as if God's, it speaks of the spirit is sovereign, first of all. When you think of the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself uh, describes the spirit as wind in John chapter three, verse eight. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes. Notice he, he even speaks, it's almost like he's pointing forward to Pentecost. You hear it but you don't know where it's coming from. You don't feel it. It's fascinating. But you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And so this speaks of the Holy Spirit's sovereignty over the church. And I like to point this out that for many who get disturbed by the different ways in which the Spirit works, it's not about the Spirit's gifts. In fact, that's a horrible translation in Corinthians. The Spirit himself is the gift And the sovereignty of the Spirit means that he has the ability to do the things of the Spirit wherever he wants, wherever the church is yielded to him. And so I want you to notice this because when the Spirit is filling a church, it doesn't mean that the church now is going to see people raised from the dead or signs and wonders and everyone's going to get healed and and everybody's going to receive a word of prophecy and a word of knowledge. The Spirit can do that if he wants to, but that's not necessarily what he does every time. And I'll give you an example. The Reformation, which all of us sitting here are, uh, would not be here had it not happened, when Martin Luther confronted the Catholic Church, literally took on the entire church, the, church, the known church of the world, under the power of the Holy Spirit, that time frame in, in church history was not marked by signs, wonders, and miracles, and tongues. It was, it was marked by Holy Spirit-infused boldness and illumination into the power of the gospel and a return to the sufficiency of Scripture. That's how the Spirit sovereignly decided to move in that time. But does that mean that he doesn't do signs and wonders anymore? No, that's not true either because I know places in the world where I have gone, I personally have seen a demon cast out of someone. I have seen, uh, I sat across the, the table from a young woman from Iran 
her and her husband, um, Nestoron uh, is the woman's name, who had Jesus speak to her in the shower when she was 18 years old. And this girl is the most normal. And what's funny is they're part of a conservative Baptist church, which are cessationists, which don't believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And I'm like, but Jesus spoke to you in the shower, so what do you do with that? She's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't think about that. Um, but her and her entire Muslim family in Tehran came to faith through, basically through visions and voices. It's insane. I mean, just miraculous events, because that's how the Spirit is choosing to sovereignly move in that area. And so for us, it's like we should be open. The question isn't, do we, we need to be expecting that the Spirit is with us and going to move toward us, but he is sovereign. But what this really speaks to in regards to the wind is that he is present. And this is the most important thing. It, we, should, we should care less about how the Spirit sovereignly chooses to manifest himself and care much more that he is available to all of God's children. And then because of what Jesus did, Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. Excuse me, sin and righteousness and of judgment. That Jesus said, when I, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That the Spirit is at work through the church and throughout the world, drawing people to the reality of Jesus. And this is what we need to be yielded to because what we have here is the promise that God would be with his people. The fact that the wind shows up and the, the sound of wind, it's like God is there with them whispering into their ears. And this speaks to the great need for the hour for us because the Spirit's presence means that we have assurance. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What God says to us by his Holy Spirit is, I am with you, I am for you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wonderful assurance. I think it's foolish when we hear people say, well, it's right to doubt. No, doubting is not where you should stay. Doubt is, an, is the out, doubt always comes after faith. Doubt is the outcome of the human rationale fighting with what it cannot explain. I didn't doubt Jesus before I became a believer. I didn't think about him. I was too busy enjoying my sin. After I came to faith, the doubts that would arise in my, in my life about my own security, salvation, those were the outcome of my natural mind fighting with what I could not explain about my new spiritual mind. And so I think assurance is something that you question, can I be assured that I'm a child of God? Yes. How, how will you ever walk through this life with Christ if you have no assurance? I mean, we're basically saying that the scripture is not true if we don't have assurance because Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they know me and they follow me. Right here, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If this tells us anything, the wind is a, as a symbol tells us that the Spirit of God is a living presence of the living God in the individual's life and in the community. Jesus said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. He is with you to assure you. He is given to you as a seal of even better things to come. Maybe the lack of assurance is due to the fact that you're still holding on to your own autonomy. And I would encourage you to release that so that you might know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is everything he said he is. 
The one thing that I am so grateful for is when I came to faith 13 years ago is I have never, ever doubted once the reality of Jesus Christ as the, as the Son of God. I've doubted my own salvation, but I've never doubted the authentic reality, the historic reality that God entered into his own story and became a man and died for me. That I believe. I just doubt my own ability to sometimes rest in that. And that's okay. And that's why we have to continually remind ourselves and encourage each other in love to surrender. His presence, this wind, not only brings, um, it fills the room, not only brings assurance, but this, this, this sovereign presence of God by his Holy Spirit brings freedom. It says, wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He's a spirit of liberty. Now, the Lord is a spirit. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, 2 Corinthians 3. In his presence comes not only to assure us, but to set us free. Jesus himself said um, in, in this right here at Pentecost is the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus that whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed because the disciples were never free when they followed Jesus in their own strength. They were absolute failures during Jesus's earthly ministry. What did he constantly say to them? Oh, ye of what? Little faith. Because their faith in him was not enough. They needed him in them. This is the mystery of the gospel, says Paul. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so here we have the the fulfillment of that promise is that the spirit comes into our lives to set us free, not to do what we want, but to do what is right. We are free now to live like Christ, to live fully in his life. Third, the, the spirit, and I think this is one of the primary evidences that you are a church that is spirit-filled and not chasing after the spirit of this age is that the spirit fills the whole room equally, drawing all the people together. The spirit's presence always, always brings unity. Ephesians 4 says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Jesus said to his disciples, they will know you are my disciples, speaking of that future reality once they would have the helper. They will know you are my disciples by what? By your love for one another. And so our ability to live a diverse group of people from all different walks of life with diverse giftings, uh, as we yield ourselves to the spirit, the spirit in his Sovereign authority now has the ability to animate those individual gifts and empower them and infuse them, natural gifts as well as newly received gifts, that the body of Christ would be built up together, that Jesus would be glorified. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the church eradicates division and brings about reconciliation, not only between us and God, but between between one another as well. So I'm always... Uh, skeptical when I see divisive voices in the church, critical spirits coming to the church and critiquing the sermon or the music like church is here solely for your benefit. And I'll speak a harsh word because I think it's a great, great problem that is driven by the spirit of the age because the spirit of the age says that life is about you and what you can get out of it. But Jesus says, no, life You exist not because of what Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Greatest lie that a philosopher has ever put forth. We should say, you are, therefore I am. Our existence 
is defined by our relationships with others. You don't exist without others. You are made to exist for others. And so we have to fight against that spirit of this age. And I would encourage you, are you do you have the spirit's presence? Are you assured? Are you free? Are you unified in the mission of Jesus? The second symbol that he uses is the symbol of fire. And I love this. The, the, the flames, like flames, something like flames that are like these in tongues. Think about how flame, they'll talk about flames licking. I mean, a tongue, a tongue I, I, I think it's literally like a forked flame. You know, it's, it's not talking about like tongues that are on fire resting on their heads, um, but, it's, but it's a flame like above there. And you ever see those old uh, patristic, like, mid, like medieval paintings of, the, of Pentecost? You'll see it'll be like all the apostles sitting around in a circle and they'll have these little tongues above their head, these little flames above their heads. Wouldn't that be cool if that was what we received? I mean, just something tangible. Like, I just want a flame floating above my head. Like, look at Josh's flame. It's burning so bright right now. Um, and then it just gets dim. Like, hey, man, you don't look like you're yielding today. I, I barely can see your flame. I only see smoke on your head. <laughs> um, so I, I think this is a, a reality. The, the picture of this is that notice it comes upon them. And this is speaking of that personal empowerment, that it's not just about, it's not just this Unit, unity of the, of the saints, but there's an actual individual reality. God loves each one of you as if you're the only one to love, is how Augustine put it. But that personal empowerment is that God literally wants to come upon you by his spirit that you might be, and I, I want you to understand, just as the, his presence means assurance, uh, freedom, and unity, his, 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 the, the power that comes with the, the spirit as fire means that his, his presence brings about sanctification or purity. It brings about power and it brings about love. It inflames our hearts. And so you think about the sanctification. God in his sovereignty means this. God's sovereignty means that he is free to do what he wants, essentially. If you want a simple definition of sovereignty, it just means that God alone is free to do what he wants. The only people that can be free are those who have received freedom from the only one who is truly free. And so his freedom to do what he wants means that he can only do that which is in, in align with his, with his purposes, with his plans, with his character. And what God chooses in his sovereignty to do is to love sinners in their sin. God has chosen, I hate it when people say God's glory is his otherness. And we tremble at the glory of God. God's glory is in his humiliation through Jesus that's his glory. And so here, his, his sovereignty means that he's free to love us in our sin, but the Spirit's presence means that he's, his sovereignty, his sovereign love is that he's not, he's, not, he's not comfortable nor willing to leave us in it. And that salvation, that regeneration, that being born again may be a, an act of the past, but there is a threefold reality to salvation. I have been saved. I am being saved. That's our sanctification. And I shall be saved. That is that future hope of a new body, resurrected body in eternity, new heaven, new earth with Jesus forever. And this in-between stage means that we're pilgrims. We're on, we're on a, a path. We're in the process of going toward God in the power of God. And the Spirit comes within our lives and he sanctifies us. This is why I'm absolutely 
unconvinced that a Christian can ever be static. That the bottom line is this, you are either moving further away from Jesus or you're moving closer to him. That you're either becoming more like him or you're becoming more like a devil. So C.S. Lewis said that a man, a woman can be sitting in a pew week after week thinking they're saint and have long ago become devils. It's a very terrifying reality, but the question is, is is there progress in your life? And the empowerment of the Spirit is that the Spirit comes upon us to sanctify us that we might represent the reality of Jesus, that when the world looks at us, they would see something different. Holiness is what God is after in our lives. But what is holiness? Because what we define holiness as often as a church is, is a misinterpretation of the word holy. We think of holy only in the negative sense, separation from sin. And it is, it is that on one level, but that is not primarily what it is. Holiness is dedication to God. And you may be asking, well, what does it mean then when it says that God is holy? It means exactly that, that God is dedicated to himself. He's dedicated to his purposes, to his plans, to his future. And unless we're surrendered to that, we're outside of holiness. And so holiness isn't so much about sinning less, but it's about being dedicated to God more, which ends up bringing about sinning less. When we focus on not sinning, it's like a chain smoker trying to not smoke by thinking about not smoking. Anyone knows you overcome a bad habit by replacing it with a good one. And so what we do is our holiness, our sanctification, the Spirit, is we yield to the Spirit. He replaces our affections with new affections, new affections. And then he infuses us with power. I love this because one of the things that is so tremendous for us is that God has given us, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 1.7, not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Paul says this about the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the just shall live by faith. And so this reality for us is that we want power from on high, not the Holy Spirit is uh, is this ability now, a power in which we control him. The Spirit's power is dependent upon his control of us, that we become conduits for his sovereign rule. Whenever I preach, one of the things that I always do is I always begin by saying, God, I bring to you my whole self, my weaknesses, my brokenness, my failings, my ADD, my, you know, all my glitches. And, and you don't want part of me, I understand. You want all of me. So I give it all to you and I allow you to now be responsible for me and all that that means. And I can promise you nobody else wants responsibility of that. Um, and so I give myself, and then when I preach, I always try to live with an absolute belief that the Holy Spirit is there with me, that when I declare the, the power of the gospel, that I have the entire universe at my back saying yes and amen. That's true for all of you. But it doesn't come unless we're yielded. Illumination, empowerment, the Spirit wants to give to you and infuse you and empower and use you that he might bring Jesus to the center of all that we think and do. That's what he wants to do. It's not based upon your intellectual capacity. It's based upon your availability to the living Christ. 
I'm so grateful. I stand as a witness to this very fact as a guy who literally is diagnosed with severe ADHD. He was probably on the bipolar three hypomaniac, um, which is why I live on adrenaline and don't sleep, um, is, is God's ability to take broken materials and bring beautiful things out of it. The fact that I get a pastor at church after spending, barely graduating from high school, never going to college, spending 10 years pursuing, you know, fame through music and wasting it on hard drugs and have the Holy Spirit empower me to preach Jesus is a reminder to all of you that don't underestimate the Spirit's power. You are not a bigger failure than God already knows that you are, so get over it and just surrender. Surrender. (laughs) That's the gift. (laughs) That is the gift. (laughs) People are like, wait, I think that was a, I think he just said something mean to me. (laughs) I did. (laughs) The spirit is what makes us good, okay? So, and what does he produce within us? Passion. The spirit upon us means that he inflames the heart. The motivation for the Christian life can never be the fear of doing what is wrong. The motivation of the Christian life can only be the love of Christ. Paul says, it is the love of Christ that compels me. What motivates me to do things for my son, Henry, who came with me on this trip and is being such a good 12-year-old and sitting through the sermon for the second time. Um, I told him he could play video games, so if he looks like he's not paying attention, it's because I gave him permission. Uh, the motivation to love my daughter Hattie and my wife, to the motivation for me to love a thousand unruly hipsters at our church in Door of Hope is, and that's a task, is, is, is the love of Jesus compels me. I didn't care about anybody but myself before I found Jesus. But that is what keeps us on the path. The love of Christ compels us to move forward, not our own self-effort or our fear of, 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 of offense or sinning or doing wrong. I'm, we can't try harder. You can't white-knuckle your way up Jacob's ladder. We need a spirit-infused love. And this is what Paul says in Romans 5, that the Spirit of God comes into us and he, and he imparts the very love of God is, is poured out in our hearts, a love for God and a love, a God's love through us for others. Necessary. Finally, let's consider the, the, the sign that comes from these two symbols, and it's the sign of tongues. It says in verse 4, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And, and what this says to us is that the, that the Spirit is a missionary spirit. He is a missionary spirit. He is, in reality, the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit is the shy one. The reason we don't think about the Holy Spirit that much is because the moment you put your focus on him, he immediately, he, he immediately, if the Spirit, you know, Jesus was here and this was the Spirit, he'd be like, he's over here, look at that. Because he just wants to point the world to Jesus. That's what he wants to do. And what happens is that this tongue is, is that when the Spirit of God comes, it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was with them. The Spirit comes upon them. His presence is with them. His power comes over them. And now, and now from within them, his witness comes through them. The Spirit of God comes within us. And how do we know it's the Spirit? Is that it always declares the beauty of Jesus. Jesus. The last great revival actually came through 
our heritage, which is Calvary Chapel, was one of the key players in the Jesus movement of the late 60s, early 70s. And, it was, and they were known, I, I actually think that it's sad when it became the Calvary movement rather than the Jesus movement. I don't think that that's something that we should boast in. I don't want to take pride in any movement of any man or church. I take pride in the movement of the Spirit when he sovereignly moves amongst people who are yielded to him. And actually, the Jesus movement really broke out all over the world in many different places. One of our elders at Door of Hope was radically saved through the Jesus movement in New York City, uh, where Calvary was not. It's just another, it's just, it was happening in pockets all over the place. It happened in England, uh, just where God's spirit moved in a very special way. And we're ready for our own revival, and I think we're going to see, see another revival. I believe that we're... I'm, I, pray constantly. Our mission for Portland is that we would see a revival um, in the city of Portland. And I don't mean a name of a church. I mean an actual outpouring of God's spirit in a magnified way in which thousands and thousands come to Christ and believers become, become empowered in a, in a way that goes beyond human explanation. That's what I want to see. The witness of the spirit. You know a church is spirit-filled when it constantly talks about Jesus. It can't stop talking about Jesus. Ray Steadman, one of the great leaders of the Jesus movement in Northern California, one of my favorite, I still read his sermons regularly. He says, when the church is spirit-filled, it talks about Jesus. And when the world hears that, then it is finally convinced that its most basic and fundamental sin is not the evil things it does, but the fact that it does not believe in Jesus. Witness of the spirit. When the Spirit comes, up, comes into the room and fills the place and comes upon the disciples and then comes through them, they begin to speak in tongues given to them, utterances given by the Spirit. And remember, it says that people were amazed for they were hearing the gospel spoken in their own language. And what we have at Pentecost is literally a reversal of Genesis chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel. The pride of man caused God to come down and disperse the people by confusing their language. Through the work of Jesus, now the world is brought back together um, under Jesus, the firstborn of a new humanity. And so the gospel, the witness goes out and God uses the gospel this day of Pentecost to reverse Babel. And now a new humanity is brought forth in which people are hearing the praises of God in their own language. And, this, and it says that some thought they were drunk with wine. And I want to just debunk a, a common myth that we find in, in hyper-charismatic movements where they use this as a way of explaining a very unbiblical idea, which is drunkenness in the spirit. They weren't acting crazy. What they were doing was worshiping and praising God and confessing the reality as Jesus as Messiah and, what, and that Jesus was indeed Israel's long-awaited Messiah and that he was the son of God. And what caused people to think they were crazy is that they said, this carpenter's son was actually the weighted messiah and yes he died on a cross was was killed as a common criminal and he rose from the dead and what you see today is the the outcome of that reality and people responded one of two ways they either were drawn to it for it says the crowds gathered and peter stood up and preached peter the denier now empowered preaches this powerful gospel in which 3,000 were saved. But not all were saved because some scoffed. And we need to understand as a witness to Jesus that we are not called to be lawyers. We are called to be witnesses, conduits in which 
The Holy Spirit witnesses to the reality of Jesus, and it will come like a sword. It will divide, for the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And this is what happened. And we need not be afraid of the outcome because we're not responsible for it, but we are responsible to be yielded conduits for the Spirit of Christ. And so I want to close with this thought for you. Are you yielded? Are you looking to the Spirit as some kind of power to put under your control? Or do you see the Spirit as God himself who's demanding control of you? Have you ever yielded to the Holy Spirit in such a way that you have become a conduit for the witness of Jesus? How do we do that? You know, one of the things I just encourage the church to do, and we'll close here, is just a most practical thing, is that when you come to the Scriptures, do you, first of all, do you get into the Scriptures every day? We're told that the scriptures were written by the prophets and the apostles as they were inspired by the Spirit of God. Do you come with the expectation that the Spirit has been given to you as a teacher, as one who illuminates the reality of Jesus? And what I encourage my church to do is something that I just started doing a few months ago is that pick one book, and this is revolutionizing our church, pick one book in the New Testament and read it every day in one sitting for 30 days in a row. And when you start the book, and don't pick Philemon or Jude. That's lame, okay? And they're like, I know Philemon like the back of my hand, that, the two paragraphs. Um, you know, but, but, you know, I'm not telling you to pick Matthew, although I think that's doable. I just did Romans for 30 days in a row, and then I did 2 Corinthians for 30 days in a row, and now I'm doing Matthew for 30 days in a row. Romans took me, at, the first time it was like an hour and a half, but by, this, by the second week I was reading it in like 35, 40 minutes. And every day I just would begin by, Holy Spirit, teach me about Jesus. Illuminate my own heart. Show me how to apply this. And just begin with a yieldedness for the Spirit to teach. But he can't bring to remembrance that which you have not put into your heart and into your mind. He's given us a word. We need to begin to rethink about the world through the lens of the Scriptures as illuminated by the Spirit that we might be an empowered people. I just to test my own ADD brain, how long can I stay focused? I read the entire book of Jeremiah in one sitting without getting up once from the table. It's the longest book in the Bible, and I'm telling you, I'm a dummy. You, if I can do it, you can. We come and we release ourselves to the Spirit. Spirit, teach me. Teach me. Jeremiah was really bleak, though. I got depressed after it was over. I'm like, man, so much carnage. <laughs> so few happy verses. <laughs> Um, so this is, this is the call. We, are you yielded? Have you surrendered? Isn't it funny that the Christian life always comes back to surrender, whether it's a gospel? President, it always comes back to the gospel. Jesus did it all. Have you responded to that offer? I've come that you might be free and be free indeed. Surrender to him today.